Some people say that religion has killed more people than anything else. But that's not true. In the 20th century, the drive to enshrine secularism, secularist, secular, secular, sectarianism, the opposite of what the Bible says, <laughs> the drive to, to, uh, to institutionalize communism and socialism throughout the world in a world without God, has killed more people than religion ever did. And so we need to remember these kind of things. It's good to remember the lives lost in defense and opposition of all those things. And of course, some lives were lost due to the foolishness of the governments, because governments are not always, not always they're not infallible, they make mistakes. And uh, not all leaders are infallible either. But still, lives were lost and for the good of the nation. Now, remembering is something that is taught to us by God in His Word. Israel, the nation, had large remembrances that were dictated by the law, and they had to hold them periodically. And they were at different phases. Some memorials were every week, some were once a year, some were every three years. But there were always this constant cycle of memorials. There were even some memorials that took place once every 50 years, and some every seven years. A regular system of reminding, of remembrance given to us by God. And so taking time to remember is a good thing. Now in 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle wants Christians to remember, and a large part of Christian ministry, believe it or not, is just simply reminding people of what they've already heard or what they knew already. And so when you're a pastor, you get to preach the same stuff all the time. It's great. I preach the same, I have seven years worth of sermons, I just preach them through. In a cycle. <laughs> That's the only way you can have time to fish. <laughs> well, let's take a reading now from 2 Peter chapter 3. The Apostle Peter was responding to an issue that's at hand in the Christian church. As Christianity has spread, has spread, part of its core teaching is the return of Jesus Christ. But at the date that Peter wrote this, it's been 35 years since Jesus has ascended back to heaven. And for three decades, Christians have been saying, hey, Jesus is coming. And the critics of Christianity are saying, hey, if he hadn't shown up in 30 years, he ain't coming. Have you ever been waiting on somebody? You're going to meet somebody at a certain place, and they're 10 minutes late, and you go, are they coming? 20 minutes late, are they ever going to get here? 30 minutes late, are they going to get here? Well, if you wait for them for 30 years, what's your <laughs> attitude going to be? Well, they ain't coming. And so this is something that Peter talks about here in 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to this reading from God's Word. Now this is the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the words, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord 
One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Now here in this text of Scripture, I want to point out to you four things and then three conclusions at the end. And since it's a holiday weekend, we're not too worried about how long I preach, are we? Of course not. We're all off tomorrow. We've got nothing to do this afternoon. So we can just take you know, the three or four hours that I've planned uh, to use this afternoon <laughs> today. I want you to notice, first of all, the power of the scoffers here. Isn't it striking that the Apostle Peter writes a letter in response to scoffery, mockery, or disdain? He's writing to talk to them about people who are giving them a hard time. He's writing a letter to tell them that those people who are making fun of you, don't worry about them. Now, the old adage is this, sticks and stones will break your bones, but what? Now, that is kind of true and kind of not true. You can call me a name, it's not going to hurt me one time. But if you keep on like a trip hammer, bam, 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 doing that to me over and over again, it can get into your head, can't it? It can really kind of debilitate you. And so the Apostle Peter, he writes to warn the church, to tell them, to, to remind them the, about the dangers of the cumulative effect of criticisms. They can have a big impact on us, even on people of faith. The Christians, Christians are very often ridiculed. It's been that way for a long time. Sadly, Christians also engage in our own ridicule and scoffing too. I don't know many Christians who don't engage in ridicule. We have to be careful about that because it's easy to ridicule people because of how they are or choices they make or the path they're on. But we don't find our Lord Jesus doing that. We find Jesus ridiculing, mocking people who are religiously self-righteous. We don't see him using ridicule as a tool. Now, Peter's concern for the people to whom he writes is that the voice of the scoffer will occupy their minds and that they will forget what the prophets have said. Have you had something just get into your mind and it just sits there and you can't get rid of it? It just dominates all your thoughts? You ever been at work, you're trying to do your job and you're staring at the computer screen or trying to process some problem and there it is, like, like, a, like, a, <laughs> like a cancer reaching out its tentacles through your mind and you can't even think about anything but that problem. Peter is warning us, he's reminding us that this voice of the scoffer can occupy our mind and cause us to forget what's important. The tenacity of criticism is incredible. There are some people who are so critical of other people that they they never lack for opportunity to be criticism. They never give it up. They just stick on it. They stick on you like stink on a dog, you might say. And I bet more than one person here has had a few of these moments in their past when they faced extreme criticism. And even after all these years, even though that's in your rearview mirror, it's still there. I'll give you a personal illustration. When I was a little kid, 
I was playing in the front yard of our house, and I think we lived in, uh, did we live in Delavan for a while? Delavan, Illinois? It was, uh, did we have a greenhouse and a white house? And I don't remember, I think it was the white house we lived in. One, this is my mom and dad, by the way. I'm looking for them for affirmations over here. This is my dad, Terry, and my mom, Kathy. And I told Deb Marks that her name was Bertha. <laughs> but then my conscience took over. <laughs> and uh, in one of those houses, I was playing in the front yard, and a, a car slowed down. And a kid leaned at the window and said, hey, fatso. Now, up to that point, I had never thought that I might be fat. But that has not left my mind yet. I still think of it. Hey, fatso. Just one word from one random person who I've never seen before. If I could find him again, I might, I might do something because that word's echoed in my mind many times. And that's just, one, that's just one little criticism. Think about what it could be like for somebody who's faced that day after day after day after day after day. The power of criticism. The power of scoffery, intense personal criticism can cause you to develop negative self-images about all kinds of things. And so Peter says, we need to remember that the scoffers, that they're wrong. The scoffers are wrong. They're saying the Lord is not coming, but they're wrong. Even though they are relentless in their scoffery and mockery and derision, they are wrong. There's the liberation that the scoffers seem to have. You have to consider the source sometimes. These scoffers, they are mocking Christians. They are mocking the gospel. They're mocking the return of Christ. They're mocking our blessed hope. And so we have to be ready for their hostility. Hostility. But even while they're mocking us and giving us a hard time, even though we know that what they're saying is not true, They seem to be having a pretty good time doing it. Look at the reading there in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse number 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, because these persons have no fear of God, they go along pursuing the satisfaction of their desires, which also becomes an, an element of, which also provides opportunity for scoffing. Because Christians often don't do things that other people do because we are Christians. And the scoffers will say, hey, we're over here having a great time. We're enjoying ourselves. We're not letting God wreck our vibe. We are really enjoying life over here. But they're following sinful desires. Now, now pursuing desires are not all bad. I think it's great in Ecclesiastes where it talks about, Solomon talks about, uh, there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy the fruits of his labors. There's nothing better than to get a paycheck on Friday and go get yourself a steak dinner on Friday night and buy yourself a new gun on Saturday and then buy yourself a boat on Sunday and then call into work on Monday because you got a gun and boat. you got to do something with them. <laughs> nothing better than for man to work and enjoy what he's earned. That's a, that's a blessing from God. But there are sinful desires that we should not pursue. And I think this means... That even desires or appetites to do sins is also a sin. I'm not for sure about that, but I think that kind of leans that way. What scoffers do is they say to Christians, look at us, we are living without the constraints of the God. We don't have God in our life and we're happy without Him. So why would we want Him to return? We as Christians, a lot of times, we are miserable and we look up to heaven and say, even so, Lord, what? Come quickly. 
Come get us out of this rotten mess. There we are, longing for hope from heaven. The scoffer says, hey, we're having a great time. We don't need God. You Christians, you need God. And you're looking for Him to come, but He ain't coming. 30 years, they say. Now, it is true that without Christ, you can be happy. But only at a certain level. And I put here to say at a superficial level, but that, that might not be accurate. You can be happy without Christ at many levels. I read biographies of lots of people who do have no concern for God who are happy at many levels. But what happens is, without God, your ability to be happy is going to lessen as you get older. As you age, your ability to enjoy what you do decreases until you are without the ability to do those things. Now, I want you to read a scary verse, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me there. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse number 1. Ecclesiastes 12.1 Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw nigh of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. If you look at the rest of chapter 12, it's a, it's a poetic description of the body breaking down. It's an interesting study to do. You see, without God, without Christ, your only hope for pleasure and joy is now. And as your life winds down, as your body runs down, the ability to satisfy and make yourself happy decreases. But if you have Christ, you have a source of joy and hope. You can have springs of water bursting forth from within you. The scoffers. Why do they do? Why why do they keep on doing it? Psalm 64, verse 5 says, The evildoers, as they're doing their evil deeds, they say, Who sees us? Who sees our evil deeds? Who is there to judge us? And they do so because they're oblivious to the spiritual realities that Christians are aware of. Just like many of us are oblivious to how the ecosystem works or how Microorganisms are making our lives possible right now. But God sees, and God's not going to let the scoffers get by, because the day of the Lord will come. There is going to come a day of reckoning. And notice verse number five. There is a deliberate denial of the scoffer. The scoffers, they live in deliberate denial. Now, I'm going to read verse five to you. For they deliberately overlook this fact. And he gives a few sentences here. That the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, and by the same word is reserved to destruction. Now, this section here, the deliberate denial, where they deny what they know, could mean two things, all right? Two things. Verse number five. They deliberately overlook this fact. Have you ever deliberately overlooked a fact? Have you ever thought about what it'd be like if you were the if you were a referee for the Sheboygan basketball team? And Sheboygan is neck and neck. Neck and neck with, let's say, who is our who who would be a good team for us to really stick it to? Petoskey. I agree 100 percent There it is. The last few seconds are ticking by. It's tied up. 
and you see a Sheboygan guy give somebody a good foul and gets the ball back, and they're there, you want Sheboygan to win, and you have the power to blow the whistle or not blow the whistle, you say, well, I just didn't see that. You know when Sheboygan runs down there and scores the game-winning basket, you know, and they, ah, it's crazy. And somebody's down there and they're yakking at you, you know, you, hey, you missed that call. Like, I didn't see it. I didn't see anything. Being deliberately ignorant. <laughs> I didn't see anything. When I, was a, when I was a kid, my cousin Jimmy would do something to my cousin Misty. And he would pinch her or gouge her or do something to her. And she'd go, ow! And my Aunt Laura would go, what's going on over there? And Jimmy would go, I didn't do anything. And I saw it coming. And he'd say, what about you, Bumper? I'd say, I didn't see anything either. <laughs> Deliberately ignorant. Deliberately overlooking a fact. And this can mean two things here for us spiritually. This can mean two things. Number one is that the people Peter is talking about are those who had been part of the Christian church but have now left Christianity. They've apostatized and now they're outside the faith. And in other words, they were people who were exposed to truth, but now they reject the truth. And because they were exposed to the truth and know what the truth says, they are willing to reject the creation account. They reject the miracles. They reject the flood. And they reject the promise of future final judgment, even though they know that to be a truth. They know that to be a reality. They reject it because they've apostatized. And they say, I am deliberately overlooking that fact. The second is, and second could be what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. That there is sufficient evidence found in the world to uphold a view of God that people deliberately ignore. Deliberately ignore. In the practice of law, there's a little maxim, and here's what it is. And when you're trying a case, when the law is on your side, you pound the law. And when the facts are on your side, you pound the facts. And when neither are on your side, you pound the table. <laughs> Just make a lot of noise. This might be a tactic that pastors use sometimes. <laughs> Maybe. Now, Romans 1.18 says that there is enough natural evidence of a creator that the existence of God that causes every culture in history to do two things. They did, every culture develops their own view of God based on what they experience in creation. And the second thing is, is there's enough evidence in creation for God to condemn all men everywhere, even if they've never heard the Bible, seen the Bible, or heard the name of Jesus, because creation itself declares there is a God. These are the, these are the two things. When they deliberate denial of the truth, they overlook these facts. It can mean it's either a person who had been a part of Christianity and now is outside of it, or it's this Romans 1, 18 to 20 kind of thing. Now, I want to ask you a question. I wonder if you are in denial about something. Are you wrestling with Christianity, with the truth of Scripture? And you've been exposed to it, and it's been bouncing around in your head. Maybe your parents are Christians, or, or maybe you have a friend who's a Christian. But you're not so sure that you're a Christian. And you're running these things through your mind. What are you in denial about? Ask yourself these questions. Am I in denial about God and the gospel? Now, in denial means in denial of a reality. Do you guys all know somebody who you would say they are in denial? Now, that wasn't everybody. I'm sure everybody does. Do you know anybody who's in denial about something? 
help a brother out because the sermon goes longer when you don't participate. <laughs> denial. You know what that's like to be in denial about not when to face a reality. Secondly, do you use denial to justify your sin? Look, I don't know that that's exactly in the Bible. This is something that uh, I've thought about. You're, you're always at the edge trying to argue things. You've got to be exact. Does the Bible exactly say that? And there's a, just in principle, you know, you're wrestling with these kind of things. Am I intentionally choosing to live in denial? Because if I come out of that state of denial, if I come to the truth, it's going to have certain implications. So I just, I'm just not going to think about that. Denial. Are you in a state of denial? Let's talk about the final day that Peter talks about here. There's a final day coming. Listen to verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are on it will be exposed. You see, the final day is coming, and we live with this sort of looming over us that this last day is coming. We don't know when this day is going to come. We don't know when it's going to take place exactly, but it will take place. We could think of the return of God, the return of Christ, kind of like we think of death. We don't know when death's going to come, but we know it's coming. It's going to come. And the day of the Lord, when it does come, will be the death of life as we know it. Now, humanity knows that the end is coming. They just don't know when. This pandemic, we've just are living through the last stages of it, Lord willing. It shows us that. The whole world is, is set to understand it's going to come to an end. We had a missionary came to our church in Arkansas. Man, it's like 20 years ago. He's dead now. He got cancer and died. He was a missionary in uh, Uganda. But he worked for NASA. And he was a part of, the, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a program. So let's just ask this question. Have you guys ever seen a Bruce Willis movie? Okay. Have you ever seen the Bruce Willis movie, Deep Impact? Where there's this asteroid that's coming towards the earth, and you know Bruce and his team, they land on the surface of it and drill holes down it to put bombs in it to blow it up. You guys seen that? Armageddon. Thank you. Not Deep Impact. Deep Impact was another movie. About the same thing. <laughs> and they came out the same year, I think, or right close to each other. And the reason they did was because NASA, they set up this system to detect asteroids coming and hitting the earth. And Kyle Guyman, he, he was part of that program. He said, we saw one. We actually detected a massive meteor that was coming for the planet earth. He said, but we, but we detected it after it passed us. <laughs> Which shows how efficient the government is. <laughs> We saw after it already passed us. And then all these movies come out about it. I mean, they know, they know the end is coming. Everybody knows the world's going to come to an end. Globally, the fear of death is massive. This pandemic has shown this to us. Even the most powerful people on the face of the earth have been scared, have been frightened of death. Hebrews 2.15 says that those who are unregenerate are slaves all their lives to the fear of death. Humanity knows the end is coming. 
And one day the end will come. It's going to come. And we wish we knew when, don't we? When is it going to come? I'm going to tell you when it's going to, when it's going to come. It's in verse 9. The end is going to come when everyone who is supposed to be saved is saved. What I mean by that, when everybody who is supposed to become a Christian becomes a Christian, then the end comes. Look at verse 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow. God is intentional. God ain't dragging his feet. God's working according to his own purpose. Jesus our Lord said, when this gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world, then shall the end come. When the last person who's supposed to get in gets in, It's over. When the last person supposed to get in gets in, it's over. Maybe it's going to take place in Guatemala over the next five weeks when Elizabeth Proud is down there trying to tell native South Americans how to find Christ. Maybe it's going to be her fault (laughs) that I don't get to catch a steelhead. God is not slow. He ain't dragging his feet. He's intentional. He's intentional. Now, I find great comfort in this promise because I've thought about this a lot. I want the Lord to come. Do you want the Lord to come if you're a Christian? Do you want the Lord to come? I want him to come. But I know people right now who are not Christians. Do you? I know people who are are not Christians right now, and if the Lord comes, they're not going to get to go to heaven. And I, but I want the Lord to so I'm, I'm conflicted. I want him to come. But if his plan is to not come for 100 more years, then some of those people who I know and love are going to come to faith in the future. I'm willing, I'm willing to walk through death. I'm willing to go through the dark veil of death. I'm willing to get sick and die. Not because I'm special Not because I have great love, but I have to to try to think about it that way. Lord, if you're not going to come in my lifetime, I know you're still going to be saving people. Oswald Chambers, he makes a statement in one of his books. He says, what is God doing right now? And the answer, what is he actively doing? Reconciling sinners to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. God is not slow. He's intentional. You say, well, this delay, time is really annoying to me. What verse 8 tells us is that time is no constraint to God. God is not worried about time. Not at all. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that a Christian minister who is filled with the Holy Spirit can accomplish more in 10 minutes worth of anointed preaching than a thousand preachers can in a hundred years. God is able to do exceedingly above more than we can ask or even think, even dream of. Well, what should we do? What should we do? With this knowledge, what should we do as Christian people? Look at verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting and hastening for the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Well, we should be conscious, be conscious that we are to live here on this earth as his people. It's striking here, he says, since everything's going to burn, we should not build for ourselves houses of treasure or even homes in the stars, but that we should focus on living lives of holiness and godliness. We are to live lives that validate the gospel, not by external shows, not by facades of Christianity, but by pursuing God with all our hearts and all our minds, by living out what Christ has said. I put a note to myself here that I don't don't remember putting there, so I'm going to turn and see what I said. 1 Peter 3, 8-11. Listen to this reading. This is how we should live. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against, against those who do evil. This is our ambition. This is our objective. This is our goal. To spend our time here waiting. Secondly, is to be conscious of time. Every day, live to the fullest that you can by enjoying God above all things and enjoying the gifts that He's given to you. Now, when is a father most happy with his children? This is an interesting thing to think about. When you see your kid, if you buy, have you ever bought your, your, your kid a gift and they didn't really like it too much? You know, from a very small age, I don't remember. If my, I think my parents taught us this. I can't remember. Is even if you get a gift you don't like, what are you supposed to do? Say thank you and act like you like it. <laughs> don't let anybody know you don't like it. I think one time I bought Valerie a present one time. Actually, Valerie is a wonderful girl. She's a wonderful girl. When we left Arkansas to move to Oklahoma, I went to had four days to buy a house. We'd never owned a house in our whole life. We never had a house. I had four days to go there, find a house, and buy it. I didn't have time to consult with her. We had general parameters what the house had to be like, so I went to Lawton, Oklahoma, drove through town looking at houses. I looked at a house. I made an offer on a house. I bought the house, and the first time she saw it was when we moved in. And when we moved in, we had a 30-year mortgage. So this is her home for the next 30 years. And we moved in. We walked around to the house. She showed, we, you know, we got everything settled. It was only about five years later that she ever told me, I didn't really like this house. (laughs) But she didn't say anything for five cotton-picking years. 
five years, she didn't say a word about it. I mean, she acted like she liked it for five years. And then she said, you know, because Terry, wherever you are, Wherever you are. <laughs> we should, a father is really happy when, they, when he sees his kids enjoying the gifts. God has given to us life and work and family. And when God sees us enjoying what he's given to us, it makes him happy. God is most glorified by us when we are most satisfied with him. Him. Hebrews 13, 5. Hath not I said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, be content with such things as you have given to you by the Lord. Thirdly, I want you to be sure of something. Be assured in your mind that Jesus is coming. And when he does come, he's going to usher in a new and glorious age. A new, clean, sin-free, holy world. Sin-free. Now, <laughs> I think this has to be said to Christians sometimes. Sin-free does not mean pleasure-free. Sin-free does not mean pleasure-free. Sometimes I think a place of holiness and goodness is going to be boring. Not true. Remember, when God made the Garden of Eden, the word Eden means pleasure. To be sin-free is not to be pleasure-free. To be sin-free is to have pleasure without guilt. And what a great thing that is. There will be a world of inestimable joy and happiness. So just two concluding things. Number one, if you'll believe the gospel today, you will have a reservation in this new world. If you believe the gospel. And if you have believed the gospel already, I remind you that eternal pleasure, in spite of what the scoffers say, is your fate for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we've taken this text in hand and we pray you'll bless it to our hearts. Minister to everyone as they need, Father, I pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.